Hello, hello, and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 40B in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today in the show... Nearly 9 out of 10 respondents, roughly 88% of families, are really worried about being able to afford the essential things that children will need for school in 2024. With children getting ready to go back to school, a survey from the Smith family found out parents are concerned of school expenses. Some have to decide on spending on their children's school or putting food on the table. How concerned are Australians about it? We investigated more. And later today... In most cases in Australia, when we looked at women and men applying for research time, there actually wasn't a gender disparity in the first place. A new research has found removing personal details from research facility applications is beneficial for women in STEM areas. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, this week the federal government has released an interim response about the safe and responsible use of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is expected to enter our lives and could increase the Australian economy by 40%, bringing both positive and negative effects in the workplace. But with 69% of Australians being nervous at this technology, how should the government address it? I asked Chief Scientist Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of New South Wales, Toby Walsh, his thoughts about the government's response. Well, it's welcome to see the response. We've been waiting for quite a few months now. But I must admit, I was a little bit underwhelmed. It is rather light and, as I said, rather late. So you would like to see more more things implemented there? I would. Um, There was a lot of discussion in the interim response in terms of voluntary uh, arrangements with industry. And I'm not sure that leaving industry um, to mark their own homework is the best of ideas and that we should be perhaps looking to actually set legal guardrails around you know, what is uh, acceptable behavior so that all of us can profit from this um, amazing new technologies that are arriving. There was a survey from Ipsos that found out Australia is the most nervous nation about uh, artificial intelligence. Why do you think that is? Well, it's very disappointing to discover in survey of over 30 nations that Australians were the most nervous because in the past, historically, um, we've been really early adopters. And if you go back and look at um, the mobile phone, smartphones, we were the quickest adopters of smartphones on the planet per capita. So to see us be nervous about these technologies. But you know, I think there is reason, along with the great promise, there are also significant risks. And I think the public's survey reflects the public's concern about those risks and also, therefore, the necessity to be setting in place uh, guardrails. So the federal government's response has three points of interest about this issue. Could you please expand on each one? Sure. So the first one is, is about voluntary uh, 
standards that uh, with industry on terms of uh, watermarks and labeling of uh, content but it's very important i think you know we've got a lot of very important elections coming up four billion people go to the polls around the world this year in elections uh, not in australia we'll have elections in 25 but um increasingly we're seeing people being fooled by fake audio fake video uh, we saw this in recent elections in Slovakia, recent elections in Argentina. So I think it's really important that we do have guardrails in place. Now, whether they should be voluntary, again, I'm somewhat doubtful. The, the, the big tech giants, companies like Facebook, have actually been laying off their staff who help monitor these situations and at a time when we need them the most. So that was the first leg of the of response. The second was to develop voluntary standards uh, around um, the safe deployment of AI. Um, again, that's to be welcomed, although, again, that's a little late in the day. We've already seen um, the standards organizations like um, ISO and Standards Australia have been working for a number of years on such standards. So it's not clear, again, that that's adding very much to the picture. And then the third and, and perhaps most important part of the proposal was a uh, promise to set up a, an expert committee to look at what mandatory guardrails regulations need to be put in place where do we need to strengthen existing regulation there's lots of existing regulation around privacy um, competition and so on where we could perhaps perhaps try and strengthen or apply those existing rules more forcibly and then perhaps where we might need new regulation to deal with the perhaps new challenges that AI is setting up again that's to be welcomed but again it's somewhat underwhelming in the sense that setting up a committee is not actually starting and we're way behind. I mean, if we look at where other countries are, if we look at, for example, the EU, which is probably the furthest ahead, they've um, been planning the EU AI Act now since 2020, and that's not going to be law for at least another year. So it takes a long time to get legislation in place. So again, you know, I would you know, press the, the government to, to start moving forward a bit more quickly. And what are the challenges or risks you see about this response on artificial intelligence from the federal government? Well, I think the biggest risk, I mean, I've, I've touched on some of the risks, things like misinformation and so on, and the way that AI is increasingly being used in high-stakes settings. But I think the biggest risk, one that the report doesn't actually go into at all, is the risk of missing out, whether that be because the Australian public is nervous about this technology and there's not quick adopters, or, or whether it be because the Australian government has not invested greatly in this space. I mean, it's it's hard not to draw comparisons, but, but last year, the UK government put out a similar report about how they were going to respond in terms of policy and safety around AI. And at the same time, to address that risk of missing out the opportunity, it's a, and it is a very big opportunity, the UK government announced to spend another billion pounds investing in um, AI. Along that goes along with the existing a billion over a billion pounds that the UK government invested. If we compare that to what's happened in Australia, we've seen shy of two hundred million dollars being invested by the government over the last five or so years. We'll have more from Professor Toby Walsh later in the program. <laughs> Have you checked out The Wire? It's your national current affairs program. The Wire, taking an independent look at what's happening in Australia and around the world. Fresh voices, new points of view, current affairs with a difference. Don't miss The Wire, daily on community and Indigenous radio across Australia. 
Australian kids are getting ready to go back to school after a well-deserved summer break. But with the cost of living and school expenses, parents are making difficult decisions on how to spend their money. A new survey conducted by the Smith family found out thousands of students are at risk of missing out on essential items for learning. Around half of surveyed parents think their children won't be able to purchase digital devices such as a laptop for schoolwork. Also near 50% of participants express concerns about buying a new uniform or shoes, an increase from nearly 30% last year. Hope FM's news director Anita Savage started asking general manager from New South Wales and the ACT from the Smith family Fiona Coluccio to expand more on the survey's results. Uh, look, in our annual survey of over 2,200 families, we're really quite concerned because we're nearly nine out of 10 respondents, roughly 88% of families, are really worried about being able to afford the essential things that children will need for school in 2024. With almost half of those respondents think that they're likely to miss out on a digital device or one in six miss out on internet access, which is seriously concerning considering that laptops and internet are like the pens and the pencils for the 21st century. How does this compare with last year? This would be our second consecutive year and we're actually seeing an increase in concern from the families that we work with with regards to um, the financial cost of living and families are having to make real impossible decisions every day and we're seeing that growing on how they prioritise their limited resources with housing and food and, and power at the top of the list. But the cost of these all increasing rapidly, it's meaning that essential items such as educational things, uniforms, books, laptops, and with growing kids and increasing learning um, needs, that's really becoming increasingly hard for our families consecutively. So what impact does that have on children in the playground? Look, it really makes a big deal for a young person and even just down to having a matching, ready, organised uniform that fits properly. It's a big deal to a young person. Um, Their self-esteem is all wrapped up in being the same as their peers so that they can actually sit down and focus um, at school and be able to do that. But also too, if they're missing out on key devices to be able to do key educational activities, then they're behind. And that actually then impacts their confidence. So it can be really impactful if they feel like they don't belong and they don't have the essentials. How are you seeing those cost of living pressures impacting families? Well, it's like I was saying, it's the impossible decisions that families are having to make. And if people are concerned about putting a roof over their head, putting food on the table, families are going to make that focus. And unfortunately, young people miss out with regards to their educational resources. So they may not be able to get the new school shoes that they probably require. They may not be able to have a new backpack or have the, the digital device that's actually needed. And with costs that we know, like to set up a primary student can be anywhere from $684. To set up a secondary student can be up to $1,132. That, that's a lot of money, particularly if you have more than one child for families. That makes it very difficult for families. Oh, absolutely. And look, parents are really committed to the education of their young person and being able to do that. But of course, they want to make sure that they have security. Um, And so that impossible decision puts them in a really uncomfortable space. And here at the Smith Family, we're trying to work with them to be able to support them through that on our Learning for Life program. That was Fiona Coluccio from the Smith Family, ending the report by Hope FM's Anita Savage. 
you're listening to The Wire, Independent Current Affairs and Community, and Indigenous Radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our listeners in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our friends in Tari on Tubop Radio, and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. A multi-year study led by the Office of Australia's Women in STEM Ambassador has investigated the outcomes of anonymity, removing names and other identifying information on Australian research facility applications. The study highlights major benefits experienced by early career researchers when names are removed and applications for scientific equipment remain anonymous. Australia's Women in STEM Ambassador Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith says access to research facilities is just one piece of the puzzle in STEM inequity. Anonymization addresses a crucial aspect fostering more inclusive and diverse research landscape. So what sparked the study within an Australian context and how does anonymity in research facilities compare with studies internationally? The Wire's Emma Watsky spoke with Professor Harvey-Smith to find out more. I understand the research focused on removing identifying names and other information that would make research applicants identifiable. So what initiated the study into this area? Well, about four years ago, when I first became Australia's Women in STEM ambassador, I'd read some studies from the US involving a NASA space telescope Hubble. The people running that telescope had actually anonymized their applications to uh, for scientists to use the telescope. And they found that it had a really big gender impact. In fact, women were much more likely to receive time on the telescope or the ability to use the telescope for science when their names were not on the applications. I'd also seen some, you know, in other fields like orchestras having, you know, anonymous auditions and things that really improved the gender balance. So I wanted to see whether or not this would work in an Australian context in the research sector here. And in an Australian context, what what do you believe has been the most significant finding from from the research? One of the most significant things is that I was really pleased to see that, in fact, in most cases in Australia, when we looked at women and men applying for research time on telescopes and supercomputers and other scientific instruments, there actually wasn't a gender disparity in the first place. So unlike other studies from different countries in Europe, in, in North America that we've seen, there wasn't a gender disparity. So that, that's good news in that sense. But it's more complex than that, because what we found was that early career researchers or younger people are younger in their careers were actually receiving some discrimination before the trial was conducted. So we found that when younger people, early career researchers, went through the anonymized process, they were much more likely to receive the funding or the, the allocation of time on the resources that they wanted to use. So I think the main finding of the study that's important is that young people or early career researchers really benefit from anonymization. And there's still a lot more that we don't know around you know, things like racial biases and cultural biases and how anonymization benefits people who suffer from discrimination in that case as well. So in terms of, of what this study has found in Australia, how important do you think it is employing that degree of anonymity for early career researchers to actually break in to industry? 
Well, this study and other studies that we've led in different areas have, have all shown that if you're a senior researcher or, you know, you're a professor or someone uh, at the top of their career, you're far more likely to receive funding. You know, so early career researchers are really missing out. Um, so that's not fair because their ideas are equally valid. In fact, early career researchers do the bulk of the research in Australia and around the world. So I think this is really important in anonymization to remove biases um, to do with uh, gender and culture, as we've seen in other trials in other countries, but also uh, against early career researchers. So that people aren't judging the application based on uh, whether there's a senior researcher that they've heard of in the team, but in fact on the the excellent ideas that young people might be putting forward. And I guess moving back a little bit, what do you believe have previously been some of the key barriers or other implications when researchers in, in STEM have been identifiable? There are lots of barriers that people might face. We know a lot about biases. Um, there's affiliation bias and affinity bias and you know, people like essentially people like to give chances and resources and jobs and promotions to people who are like them. We all have these biases and, and we need to be aware of them, but also tackle them. And I think anonymization gives us the opportunity to do this more efficiently. And where we are thinking about who we give chances to, and we give the chances and the opportunities to people who come up with great ideas and have the ability to change the world with those scientific ideas. And, and that's really what's important here. Through this research in particular, how has anonymity been implemented differently within different organisations? organizations to test the outcomes. Well, when you propose any changes to systems and processes in organisations, there's a bit of pushback. That's natural. Um, Some organisations were very happy to make their processes completely anonymous. They removed all uh, names and and identifying factors, pronouns and things like that. So people could really just look at the ideas. Other organisations were keen to keep the names, but put them at the back of the application. So people first read the application and then could see who was behind the research. But but really, there was no difference in those cases that we could detect. So I think there needs to be a bit more study of that. And we need to really understand how anonymization works in different contexts. Because sometimes, you know, people are genuinely looking out for opportunities to give underrepresented groups um you know, a chance to to succeed. So anonymization is actually quite complex in itself and, and can lead to different outcomes depending on the situation. As our society progresses, how vital do you believe it is that measures like anonymity are taken to close gender gaps and diversify researchers or, or diversify that pool of ideas? Well, as our study showed, there really is a, a difference um, in the outcomes depending on if you anonymize or you don't. So it's it's really about fairness and leveling the playing field and getting the best science funded. So if you're funding science, if you're giving people opportunities to use supercomputers and make great discoveries, I think by anonymization, you really give people that fair go that everyone likes to talk about. You really look at the idea and at the opportunity of the research and not, you know, go straight into those shortcuts that we often do, you know, so maybe if someone went to a particular university, they value that university above another. Maybe somebody, you know, has a particular cultural background indicated by their name or their gender. So there are lots of different ways in which we have biases and these really take away from our objectivity. 
science should be about that that whole you know that that, that consideration not just of uh, who people are but what their ideas are and, and their ability to uh, make great breakthroughs so I think this is a really important process going forward and I guess in going forward what could the impacts of anonymity mean for the future of research outcomes do you have anything else to add on that I think if we do implement anonymous review of of science and and its you know applications to use research facilities i think australia has the opportunity to really boost our innovation and our productivity and the, and the value for money that taxpayers get from the research that we fund as a nation so you know that that's going to give us better ideas you know maybe some more bold research ideas might get funded uh, and i think that's good for everyone that was professor lisa harvey smith from the university of new south wales Ending the report by The Wires, Emma Watsky. Earlier in the program, we had Chief Scientist Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of New South Wales, Toby Walsh, speaking around the interim report on AI released by the federal government. While artificial intelligence will change the workplace, Professor Walsh says this technology could bring benefits to the Australian economy, increasing it by 40%. He also says Australia is lagging in implementing legislation around artificial intelligence, whereas other parts of the world, such as the European Union, have already started in 2020. And with elections taking place in most democratic countries this year, how is artificial intelligence changing the landscape? I mean, here, I mean, social media should have been a wake-up call. We, we saw with the election of Trump in the United States with the Brexit referendum how social media was weaponized. It's a very effective means to actually reach people um, and persuade them to do things that perhaps are not in their best interests. Um, and we're, the problem uh, that we face now is that we're about to supercharge that. We're about to add to that that ability to reach into people's lives, into their phones, into the, onto their screens, uh, into their consciousness, with a, another technology, artificial intelligence, which can generate very personalised and very persuasive content. Um, there's already been a campaign advert that the Republican Party have put out in the United States, where every image in that video is fake. And it's not hard to make. That's the problem. It's very easy to do this stuff. The barriers to entry is very, very low. And we're not used to not believing the things that we see in here. And now we've got an ability with AI to be able to generate content. That picture of the Pope in the puffer jacket that your audience might have seen, or the picture of Trump being arrested by the NYPD, all fake pictures, all generated by AI, all generated very easily by AI. But entirely photorealistic, entirely impossible to tell apart from the real thing um, just by looking at the picture. So we're going to have to be a lot more sceptical about what we see. Um, in fact, I suspect social media may be just so full of this stuff that we realize that social media is just a place where we get entertained. And that if we want to find news, we have to you know, listen to programs like this. We have to... Um, turn back to you know conventional old-fashioned media to, to actually find out what the truth of what's going on 
And finally, my last question, Toby. Uh, so this report was released yesterday. Um, is there any room for improvement to make this uh, report, um, you know, better suitable for Australia in the future? Well, uh, as I, I suggest, I think there's you know, two two areas really of improvement. If I, I would give the you know the government to be at best on the on the grade card here, well, one is that they're going to have to move a bit faster. I mean, the idea that that um, you know we're going to need regulation in the space, and they, I think they pretty much accept the report. Pretty much lays out that we're going to end up with regulation, but we, but um, you know, just setting up a committee is a very slow process to do that. You know, we've seen in the U.S. in comparison, there's a presidential executive order. You just you know wrote it on a by fiat on a piece of paper, which actually circumvents Congress and gets things happening much more quickly. And then secondly, as I said, I think one of the biggest risks here is the opportunity. There's great potential that AI is going to improve our economy, improve our health care system, improve our education system, lots of aspects of our lives. Um, but we're not seeing um, that being embraced. And I think we really need to see the government you know, be spending a bit more of our tax dollars uh, to, to actually seize this opportunity. That was Chief Scientist Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of New South Wales, Toby Walsh. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and X. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Torval and Jagera countries where this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 40B in Mianjin, Brisbane. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire. Thank you.